Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to LSE um, for this evening's event. My name is uh, Frederic Basso, um, and uh, I am an assistant professor at economic psychology at the London School of Economics. And in our department, the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science, we do believe in a full uh, cycle uh, research, a research that goes from the lab um, to the world and back again, as illustrated through our teaching, our research, and our public lectures. And uh, this is why I'm very pleased to be here to welcome uh, Professor Charles Pence to the LSE uh, tonight. Charles Pence is a professor uh, of experimental psychology and the head of the Crossmodal Research Laboratory at Oxford University, which specializes in cognitive psychology, consumer psychology, and sensory marketing. Charles is an internationally recognized prolific academic researching our daily experiences. He has co-authored more than 500 scientific publications and published studies on each of the different human sciences and their integration on various topics ranging from food psychology to human, human movement in the most high-ranking journals over the last, the last 15 years. Uh, to name but a few, he did publications in Science, Nature, PNAS, Nature Neuroscience, Nature Biotechnology, Journal of Neuroscience, Philosophical Transactions, Current Biology, Neuropsychology, Journal of Experimental Psychology, Journal of Consumer Psychology, and so on. Charles has consulted for multinational companies such as Toyota and Pepsi. And it's okay. <laughs> That's, that's all right. I understand that you are impressed with uh, this. Uh... <laughs> um, and he has also collaborated with uh, Guide Michelin uh, starred uh, chefs. He was awarded among other prizes the, two, uh, the 2008 IG Nobel Prize for Nutrition for his groundbreaking world on the world work on the Sonic Crisp. And most recently, uh, the prestigious Bessel Research Award from the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation in Germany. So, uh, as you can understand, Charles uh, does not sleep at all. He's very busy. He's, uh, it's impressive. Well, his books have been provided in publications, including The Guardian, The Times, and The New Yorker. And Charles is here tonight to introduce his latest book, uh, Gastrophysics, The New Science of Eating. In doing so, he will change the way you think and the way we think about one of our most important everyday life and daily activity, food consumption. And he will talk about that from daily practices to uh, sensory marketing strategies. For those Twitter users uh, in the audience, the hashtag for today's LSE event is LSE Gastrophysics. I will ask you uh, to please put your phones on silent uh, as not to disrupt the event. Um, this is uh, recorded. As usual, after the public lecture, there will be the chance for you to put your questions to Charles Spence. And there will be also a book signing uh, taking place uh, following the event. And copies of uh, Gastrophysics will be on sale outside the venue. So now, uh, will you join uh, me in welcoming Professor Charles Spence to LSE to deliver his lecture entitled uh, Gastrophysics. Okay, 
So it's a pleasure to be with you tonight and uh, to share with you uh, some of my excitement about the new world of gastrophysics, the new science, sciences of eating. Um, this work we've been doing in Oxford for the last 15 years. We've always been interested in the senses, but over the last few years, getting more and more interested in the science of taste, of flavour, of what makes great uh, eating experiences really great, and how we can elevate the mundane, everyday experiences, be it at home or trying to feed our kids, get them to eat more of their vegetables. I think sort of the new science of, of eating is going to help out. Um, so uh, this book kind of covers all the human senses, um, and uh, sort of sits somewhere between um, gastronomy on the, one, on the one hand, that's the first part of the gastrophysics, uh, and uh, psychophysics on the other, the gastro and the uh, physics of psychophysics. The gastronomy is kind of in there to uh, hint at the fact that we're really interested in nice food experiences. Uh, and we put that there to kind of pull us apart from those who have been studying food science for a long time, but spend most of their time on tasting panels, checking uh, Brussels sprouts. You might taste frozen Brussels sprouts every Monday for a year to see what makes them taste just the way they do. Or I have other colleagues who spent a year tasting chicken breasts on Thursday afternoons to see how much fish meal you can feed the chicken before you can taste it on the breast meat. And they've never been the same since. That's important, but it's not the stuff that we're interested in. We're interested in nice food experiences, like the dish you see here, uh, pollen and the bee from uh, Kitchen Theory up in, in North London. Kind of high-end uh, cuisine. Um, and the sort of psychophysics part is really a fancy name for food psychology, scientific approach to food science, uh, where we try and study not what people say about why they chose what they chose to eat and what they think about what they taste, uh, but trying to get more objective measures, the factors that really influence our decisions, our behaviour, our perception and our memory. Um, and I want to sort of put this as, as somewhere... Uh, not food science, clearly, and also not neurogastronomy, which has also had a, a kind of a, a big press in the last few years, which would be the scientific study of the brain on flavour. That's important, sticking people in brain scanners and seeing which parts of their brain light up as you feed them this or that food, and as you tell them it's expensive wine or a cheap wine, or it's this brand of cola or that brand of cola. These do deliver important insights, but those aren't really pleasurable dining, eating experiences, lying flat on your back with your head clamped still down a narrow tube, with a pipe pipetting millilitres of, of drink into your mouth that you can't swallow, so it'll make your head move, and washed away with kind of artificial saliva between each and every dose. It's important, it tells us something, but it's not what we're really interested in. We want to know about real-world uh, dining experiences. And we're going to start somewhere uh, in the science laboratory, places like the psychology department in Oxford. Uh, we're going to try and look at people's behaviour online, kind of large-scale citizen science work. Uh, we had a large number of experiments at the Cravings Exhibition at the uh, Science Museum in, in London for the last year, collecting 50,000 people's responses to different dishes, names, descriptions, and so on. And also research out there in the real world with real diners paying real money for real food, kind of noisy research. Maybe you're out with your friends somewhere, um, and you're chatting, you're sociable, you're happy, maybe you're on your mobile device. Can we still show that the things that we think matter affect you there in the, in the real noisy world, as well as just in a highly controlled lab situation. The real world research uh, is good because it's, it's real world, um, but gets criticised because people say, nah, did you control things perfectly? How do you know that people weren't talking to each other at the dinner table? On the other hand, the laboratory research gets criticised because uh, isn't most of the laboratory psychology research all done on weirdos, Western-educated, industrialised, rich and democratic boys and girls studying psychology and mostly it is. If it's very highly controlled, 
It's just not real world, and you might wonder, well, maybe the Oxford students go that way when you change the colour of the plate or the eating utensil, but I'm sure I wouldn't be so easily uh, fooled. But by having both sides, that both sides kind of the, the highly controlled lab studies and the real world, we hopefully can counter both sets of criticisms and show that a number of things that most of us never thought would affect the taste of food uh, really uh, do. And I want to position sort of gastrophysics, the new science of eating, uh, somewhere uh, on a sort of trajectory from um, the last three decades where we've had uh, modernist cuisine, molecular gastronomy, call you what it will, um, kind of brought in, in a way, by Harold McGee's on, on Food and Cooking, published in 1984. That was all about you know, a scientific approach to cooking methodologies, to techniques. We've had sort of the molecular uh, uh, approach of spumes and gels and foams and other unusual ingredients, all designed to bring a new sets of textures and flavours and experiences uh, to diners. That's been the science of the kitchen, new ingredients, new cooking procedures, better understood, and I think now we're going to see a shift over the next few years to the science of the diner, the person in the restaurant or home at the dining table or in front of the TV. Um, and what's going on in their head to explain why things taste the way they do, why they eat as much as they do and why they don't stop or when perhaps they should um, in front of that uh, TV set. So this is kind of the science, the new science of the diner, what's going on in the mind of the person eating. So this is where I think it's really all taking place. Um, and I think it's something that's of interest to somebody like myself, a psychologist interested in the senses. I want to say it should be of interest to all psychologists, really, in that our brains kind of evolved primarily for, for the sort of foraging, finding food, predicting nutritious uh, food sources out there in the environment, tracking them, memorizing their location, attending to them. Our brains kind of evolved for that very job. And hence, even if you're not fundamentally interested in food... I think you should be interested in it if you want to know how the brain is structured and why it's structured the way uh, that it is. Um, and, and, and I think the reason why uh, uh, chefs have started increasingly to become interested in gastrophysics, I mean, these are people who have been taught all the culinary arts about sourcing and, and, and uh, preparation, cooking, seasonality. Uh, surely they've been taught everything they need to deliver a great-tasting dish to you, uh, but maybe not. And I think the, sort of the, the, the modernist uh, movement in cuisine has kind of led to dishes like the one that you see here that have sort of uh, got the chefs thinking and saying, just, you know, what I, what, I, what I serve and what tastes good to me, I can't guarantee that that will taste good to the person I want it to uh, who's sitting at the table out there. So this, when you saw this image, um, your brain, because it's evolved to kind of predict food sources, will have made a judgment call about what it is that you're looking at. Probably an um, ice cream. Probably sweet, maybe a strawberry flavoured, maybe a raspberry, something sweet, probably calorific, not so good for me. I'd like it, I know that much, but if I had some tonight, maybe tomorrow I'd have to go to the gym. And all those things go through your mind, consciously or otherwise, within the blink of an eye, just like that. And you can track it in your imaging if you like, but the brain is deciding, making predictions about the world. And then when you come to taste that ice cream, uh, if what you taste is more or less what you expected, uh, you live in the world of your expectations set by your eye, whereas if it's different, Something strange might happen. So it's a disconfirmation of expectation. And this dish is here specifically because it's the one that got uh, Heston Blumenthal, the three Michelin star chef from the Fat Duck, first interested in the mind of those he was serving. Because this is not a sweet ice cream. It's a savoury one. It's, in fact, uh, a smoked salmon ice cream or a frozen crab bisque ice cream. So savoury and salty, not sweet, as we were all led to believe by our eye. And this dish would come from the kitchen when it's first being... Uh, considered for the menu about 20 years ago now, uh, work done with uh, Martin Yeomans in Sussex uh, and the chef Heston. 
that the chef had made this new dish. It's kind of unusual to the contemporary diner, but we can go back to 1885 and find, you know, the earliest ice cream um, cookbooks in the UK. Savoury ices were quite common. But today it's unusual to people. Uh, the chef makes it uh, with his team, uh, thinks it tastes perfect to his palate, and then sends it out to a few of the lucky diners who get to go to the Fat Duck on a kind of a, a semi-regular basis, those who live in Bray and, uh, and thereabouts. Uh, you can sort of see you know, the chef peering like on those TV shows in the camera to see what, what the diner's going to say. Will they like it? Is, it? is this a new dish for the menu or not? And the diner's response was kind of, you know, Ugh. Not, maybe not quite a, Ugh, but, but, but a, uh, mm, uh, I'm not sure about that one. Uh, What's wrong with it? It tastes too salty. We have the world's best chef, soon to be, saying this is a perfectly seasoned dish, taken to the diners in the restaurant, who says, no, it's too salty. What's gone wrong? Has the chef lost his touch? No, he hasn't, but it's all about what's in the mind of the person doing the eating. So the chef in the kitchen knows this is a savoury ice. He knows what to expect. The diner who's brought this uh, a mouthful of ice, uh, if they're not told anything else, will think strawberry, will think sweet. They get something that's not sweet, it's salty, and that disconfirmation of expectation is unpleasant. Because I don't like it when I don't predict the world correctly. And that disconfirmation of expectation means I don't like the dish much at the time. I say it tastes really salty. And not only that, that first exposure, if I were to give you, in a few weeks later, some more of the ice cream, and say, now you know what it really is, it's a savoury ice. So, you know, try some now. Uh, if you won't like it still... Even though you know what it is, that first exposure kind of sets something in your mind and it will still not taste as pleasant to you as somebody who is expecting the right thing. So this says it's not just enough to have the best palate in the world and serve something to people. You need to know what they're expecting in order to get them to the right sort of sink with you preparing the food. The solution in this case is sort of uh, brilliantly simple. It's just change the name. If you call this Food 386 on the menu or when the waiter plates that dish before you, suddenly you go, Food 386, what's that? Space food, something, if you know, forever. Tim Peak or something. Uh, I'm not sure quite what it is, but it's enough for you to withhold your expectations, and then when you taste it, it will taste as the chef intended. It will taste perfectly seasoned. You will enjoy it then, and you may come back for more uh, thereafter. So this is all about sort of the, the, the naming of the dish, getting the mind of the diner into the right frame in order to maximise the experience. And it's dishes like this that kind of kept cropping up in modernist restaurants here, there, and everywhere, this sort of leads to a sort of suggestion that really, um, this is one of the main points of the book, the kind of pleasures of the table reside mainly in the mind up here and not in the mouth down here. We all kind of localise flavours as if we taste things on our tongue. But in fact, as I hope to show you, uh, there's a lot more going on. All of our senses come together, play tricks on us, that if you understand them through doing the, the gastrophysics research, you can then take those insights and engineer them into better tasting experiences. So we'll start at the very top in the kind of innovative uh, experimental spaces that are uh, many of today's modernist restaurants. But with the proof of principle in hand uh, from there, uh, the challenge uh, for people like myself is to try and take that insights and translate them to the mainstream, to branded food and drinks products, and then all the way to the home environment for that parent trying to figure out how to get their kids to eat more of their greens. Um, here's just one example. Where you can sort of take the ideas, the things that are, people at the top chefs are struggling with, about the naming of their uh, savoury ices. What should I call it to make it taste good to the diner? Uh, take it to the mainstream. It might be something like the Patagonian toothfish, which has been on restaurant menus uh, across the UK for years and years now. Just doesn't sound very appealing. Because you imagine yourself looking at a restaurant menu and saying, Patagonian toothfish? Nah, I think I'll have a, a burger or a steak or something else tonight. If I showed you the picture, 
That's probably not going to help much uh, either. Uh, but in sort of clever um, uh, case of uh, sort of marketing or, or nudging, if you will, simply by renaming that fish Chilean sea bass, same fish, uh, sustainable monster of the deep, so good if more of us ate it rather than some other kind of fish, simply by that change of name, sales in restaurants in the UK, in Australia, in North America, increased by 1,300%. Uh, and you sort of think about that in practice, how so maybe this is a kind of the best case scenario. Most, most times if you change the dish, the naming of a dish that you serve at home, it's not going to be 1,300% better, but certainly it can nudge people in a certain direction towards one choice, perhaps healthier, more sustainable uh, than another. Um, and we want to know the science of this by, by studying people's behaviour out there in the real world. When they're picking a, a bottle of wine in the, in, in the supermarket shelf or, or looking at their uh, online or in restaurant choice behaviours. And then once they've chosen what to eat, uh, how is their perception affected uh, and their memory of the event, as we'll see a little bit uh, later. So this sort of new idea that the pleasures of the table reside in the mind, not in the mouth. Where does that take us? One of the places, I think, is to, to, to think more carefully about uh, that thing called taste, the taste of the food that we know and we love, our favorite brands and products and dishes, the taste that we experience in our mouth. In fact, if you, if you had a cold or if you hold your nose closed and try tasting something, you'll know that all your mouth actually gives you is sweet, salty, sour, bitter, maybe umami, that sort of protonaceous fifth taste, and that's it. Everything else that you like in food and drink, everything you like really, the fruity, the meaty, the floral, the herbal, the creamy, that's all given by the nose. But in one of the, kind of the great tricks that your, your mind plays on you, it takes all the information from your nose and ventriloquizes it into your mouth and tells you you're tasting it in here, in your mouth. It's really on your nose and your brain doing the work, playing this kind of trick that's a bit like the ventriloquist's dummy. When you go to the cinema and you, you, you see George Clooney and you sort of hear his voice coming from his lips on the screen, but they're not really. They're coming from a loudspeaker somewhere else in the auditorium. Your brain effortlessly, automatically glues the stuff together in a way that it can be hard for us, hard for us to introspect about and figure out what is the true cause of our uh, sensational experience. So in the science of, of, of flavour perception, we know um, two things. On the one hand, that maybe as much as 75 to 95% of what we think we taste, we really smell. Uh, what the exact percentage should be and whether we should even give an exact percentage is a, is, a, is a debatable question, but certainly something in that ballpark, most of the experiences in smell. And beyond that, we have two senses of smell, not just one. We have the smell when we inhale, as the gentleman on the left is doing, and then whenever we swallow food, there's a little pulse of air that comes out of the back of the nostrils down. And this is retronasal smell, and that is where most of the flavour of food uh, comes from. These two different senses of smell um, that both contribute to the experience. And normally, if I sniff something from my coffee cup uh, or tea uh, and then I swallow, the two senses of smell seem to be in alignment. But sometimes they are not. Maybe we've all had the experience of what smells like a great, uh, freshly ground cup of coffee. Uh, it's great in the orthonasal sniff. And then when you taste it, somehow you swallow it and it's... Mm, it's not quite the same, it's not as nice as the smell led me to believe. Or in the reverse case, you find things like uh, certain French cheeses, a poisse, that will smell absolutely rank out there. But when you take some in your mouth, if you're brave enough to, can be a sublime experience retronasally. So these are two different senses that sometimes can be pulled apart, and both are important to flavour that we experience, that we think we're tasting in the mouth. 
And if you know that, and you know the illusions that we all fall prey to, and then look at how food and drinks experiences are designed out there in the real world, you start to worry at things like this, this lady drinking from a bottle, and maybe a third of everything we eat and drink, on average, is it's consumed direct from the bottle, the can, the carton, the tub, or, or, or the packet. Um, so this person here is getting absolutely no orthonasal hit. They're missing out on, an, on that 75 to 95% of the flavour. They're only getting the retronasal hit. doesn't seem like very good design to me. And if I take my kind of personal pet peeve, is the kind of coffee, plastic coffee lid. So if you take the one drink that most people would agree smells better than it tastes, on average, <laughs> why on earth would peep two million people a day be drinking their coffee from a lid that expressly prevents that orthonasal sniff and only gives you the less pleasant retronasal one? It's kind of bizarre. It's bonkers in a way. Uh, we should have designed better, but I think to these tricks of the mind, it, it sort of takes this kind of combination of psychological science uh, with good design in order to come up with a whole new way of, of designing tasting experiences that are partly about what we put in our mouth, but they're as much about the way it gets there, the way it's plated, packaged, the cutlery used, the environment that we, that we uh, sit in. Um, and the other part, I think, of the, the new approach, thinking about uh, uh, flavour experiences in the mind rather than in the mouth, is that um, what we taste uh, can be influenced by so much more than any of us would give credit for. We all of us, I think, chefs, uh, baristas, cocktail makers, psychologists, food writers, food critics alike, think that we can taste what is in that glass. Uh, we're convinced that none of us really sort of think that the glass itself would change the experience, nor the place where I'm tasting would change the experience. I just feel like, I, mean, I, can, I can tell you this research, but you don't really believe it. It's kind of like, no, I can taste, really. I wouldn't be fooled by any of these things. And yet it's the job of the gastrophysics to say, no, contrary to what all of us, psychologists, chefs, everyone alike, thinks, all these other things do influence our experience. They can be measured, studied, then hopefully optimised, and then uh, spread out to the, the mainstream. So in this case, when I see um, uh, the glass of sparkling wine here, uh, we all sort of know that that glass of wine will taste better sat there somewhere in the Mediterranean. So it's kind of the Provencal Rosé paradox is the name of the phenomenon. That we've all been on the holiday, and maybe for, for, for Northern Europeans, it's the Mediterranean in the summer. It's kind of warm, sun on your back. You're there staring into your lover's eyes. Uh, maybe not Denis. He can cook marvellously, but maybe put your favourite face there. Uh, you've got the smell of the sea, the sound of the sea, the smell of the salty sea air. You're in a good mood, you're on holiday, it's nice and warm. Uh, and that wine will taste like one of the best glasses of wine you've ever had. So nice, in fact, that you will be tempted and probably uh, will not be able to resist the urge to buy a bottle or a case. So cheap. Uh, take it back home and to share with your friends on, 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 on a winter's evening. Uh, uh, and say, you know, where I went on holiday and here are my pictures. And uh, this is amazing wine, it only cost me a euro. And you sort of open it and taste it and it's not the same. And you think, well, what changed? Did it, was it in the hold or it got cold on the way over? It got shook up or something? Was that it? And it's nothing to do with the wine. The wine is exactly the same. What changed is the environment, the mood you're in, and the place you're at. And all these other things affect the taste of that drink. And if you know that, you can then design uh, differently. So this is the Provencal Rosé Paradox. It's something we've all experienced. Uh, different people in different parts of the world have different versions of it in Taiwan. It's a tea tastes better in, in England than it does when you take it back home. In Colombia, maybe it's, you know, uh, things in the, in the Caribbean coast of Cartagena taste better than they do in the capital Bogota. Wherever you are, there's a version of the Provencal Rosé paradox. So it's kind of a, common to us all. We all know, therefore, that the environment affects us. 
But then you look in the science journals and say, surely somebody must have studied this, and no one has. Uh, and that was kind of a lead-in for us to say, it's clear the environment affects the experience. How can we study it scientifically and understand the key drivers? And how can we take inspiration from chefs like Denny here, who's a chef of two Michelin-star restaurant, uh, Denny Martin, in Vevey in Switzerland, between uh, Nestle headquarters and Charlie Chaplin's final home uh, on the shore of the lake. He's got two Michelin stars. He wants his third. And the way he describes it, uh, he sees too many sort of suits on a couch, Swiss suits on a couch, coming through the door, very stiff and formal, with kind of a face that tells him they're not going to enjoy his food as much as he thinks that they should, given how much effort he put into the experience. So what can you do? You can try cooking harder, getting fresher ingredients. Uh, none of that seemed to work. And he's got this sense, when they look like that, when they come in the door, it's kind of lost. My best efforts won't work. I can't deliver the truly great experience I want them to have. So the solution from the chef, um, sort of brilliantly simple, I think, intuitive, but one that can be uh, scaled, potentially. And it's this. It's a single sitting uh, uh, service for about 30 covers in the restaurant. And when you arrive at about 7 o'clock, there's no cutlery, no glassware, no nothing. Just one of those sitting centre stage on each and every table, and nothing happens. I mean, some people come a bit earlier, some people come a little bit later. Eventually, they all get sat down, and you think, okay, we're all here, so I don't know. I guess the first dish will come out soon, but it won't. Nothing will come out of the kitchen until somebody gets curious about what that thing is. Is it salt and pepper shaker, Swiss style, maybe? They'll pick it up to look underneath, and when they do that, they'll hear a of, a of a Swiss cow. It's a one-euro cheap toy made out of plastic, but when people pick it up and they hear the cow moo, they'll be surprised, and then they'll laugh. And then within a moment, night after night after night, then he sees you have a restaurant full of mooing cows as each table puts their cow in the air, a chorus of mooing cows, a restaurant full of laughing diners, and that's when the first dish comes out. Because if you think about um, cleansing the palate, we can dispense in a way with the traditional notion of a, of, a, of, a, of a lemon sorbet that cuts through, I don't know what it's meant to cut through, on your, on your tongue. Uh, the real work's going up here in your mind, and I want a mental palate cleanser that puts me in the right frame of mind to really enjoy the tasting experience. And again, we all know, if you're fighting with your partner, there's no way you're going to have a great tasting meal out. Uh, uh, full stop. Mood does affect our food more than we realise. The chefs intuitively designed this in, and as you go around the world and speak to chefs, you'll find others who maybe put jokes cards on the table, something to make people laugh, whatever it might be. And the question is, is there something that would work outside of Switzerland that every one of us could have on our dinner table to elevate our mood? And that's kind of one of the projects that we're working on uh, currently. The other part of the, uh, of the, um, of the Provencal Rosé moment has to be this, the sea, the sound of the sea, the smell of the sea, uh, the seagulls and the salty sea air. We've got at least one of those senses here being served up at uh, Heston Blumenthal's The Fat Duck in Bray, the signature dish. Since it came on the menu in 2008, it's still there to this day. And it's one that many will point to as the most memorable dish for them in the experience. Uh, we had nothing to do with the, with the design of the dish itself, the sashimi, uh, uh, seaweed, sand and foam that you see at the top of the screen. Uh, but we were um, involved in the inspiration for the dish that sits on the bottom right, namely the uh, conch shell, which is delivered to the diner at the table, together with some earbuds. Uh, and the waiter will recommend in their best French accent to put the earbuds in. Uh, you put them in, you hear the sounds of the sea, a carefully calibrated number of seagulls swirling around overhead. Um, and we've done the research with Heston and his team at uh, Art and Science Museum in Oxford on 150 uh, conference delegates to show that oysters taste significantly better, but no more salty with the sounds of the sea than with restaurant cutlery noises, modern jazz, 
farmyard chickens or anything else that we have in our portfolio of weird and wonderful soundtracks. So it was the inspiration that sound is the forgotten flavour sense and it's been brought to the table at one of the world's top restaurants and becomes a signature dish. I think it's very nice. Um, uh, on one hand, it's one of the first examples of technology at table. Technology that we normally keep separate from food and drink, um, but is here used to enhance the experience. And it's also a bit about the sort of psychology of attention and concentration. Because when you go to the restaurant, you have tables full of diners, chatting, excited, noisy, once-in-a-lifetime experience. Maybe they're not really paying attention to the food as much as they should. But as soon as they put those earbuds in, the table will go silent. Everyone will have their attention squarely focused on what they're eating. And by that act of focusing people's attention, that also helps to enhance uh, the taste uh, of the dish. Something that's just a place of seafood, but if you're in Slough or thereabouts, kind of as far from the English coastline as you can more or less get uh, in these shores, every little helps uh, in terms of, of bringing the seaside uh, uh, there. And now we see many other uh, chefs around the world taking this notion and running with it, technology at table, how to augment the experience. And when we first did the experiment in 2006 in Oxford, we felt like we were the first ones to do it. Uh, but of course you never are. There's always somebody who's been there before, probably a whole team of people who've been there before. And in this case, if you look back through the annals of history, what you find is in um, the 1970s, in uh, some psychiatric care homes, were playing the sounds of the sea to psychiatric patients to help calm them at mealtimes and so get them to eat a little bit more than they otherwise were in their distressed state. Go back even further to the 1930s and you find the mustachioed F.T. Marinetti, uh, one of the people from history I'd most like to meet, uh, author of the Futurist Cookbook from 1930, um, who was uh, at that time serving diners in Turin um, uh, dishes of frog's legs, to be eaten while listening to the sounds of the croaking frogs in the background. <laughs> so, uh, better late than never, I suppose. But one thing that's crucially different between the futurists who had many brilliant ideas that were seeing played out in cuisine today and what's happening actually today is that futurists could not cook. They're described as a, you know, a fart from the kitchen by the Italian press. It was like perfume with um, uh, all, all things you wouldn't want to put in your mouth when you read the descriptions. What's changed today is it's the world's top chefs who realise that as well as delivering the best thing on the plate, if, in fact, there is a plate, they need to be in control of the everything else as well to optimise the experience, to maximise the memory and have you and everyone else talking about how great the experience is. So that was 2007, 2008. Uh, at the fact, Duck in Bray and since then I said this kind of approach to realising, acknowledging the importance of the environment in all its facets, its visuals, its auditory, its smell, its touch, its temperature are coming uh, to bear around the world. So here we are, uh, 2011, thereabouts, Paul, Chef Paul Poiré, two Michelin stars again, over in Shanghai, his restaurant, um, Ultraviolet. 20-course uh, tasting menu, each course with different projections. Here we see his take, the French chef in China, serving fish and chips, kind of a... Uh, it's that little, that little caper berry stuffed. And you've got 19 more courses to go, so you don't need to worry about... You're not going to be full up, but there it is. Uh, his take on fish and chips with a modernist twist. It comes to the table uh, on a beautiful plate. It comes with the sounds of the sea, which are followed up by the sounds of the most quintessentially British pop group, the Beatles. He projects a British flag on the table, because we all thought that fish and chips were, 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 were British, um, until we realised they were Venetian, but most of us think they're British. The British flag on the table, and then to try and capture that, you know, sort of um, Provencal winter moment, uh, the rain-spattered walls projected to really take you back there. Um, and apparently the dish tastes you know, better with this multisensory environment than you would served in any other way. Um, 
it gets lots of mentions. It gets lots of coverage. Um, again, a great chef taking the technology and trying to enhance the tasting experience. I would love to do experiments here, but at 500 euros or 1,500 euros a head, my Department of Psychology is definitely not going to pay for the 40 or 50 diners I'd need to get statistical significance to measure if it really does. So I have to leave it in their hands in a way, but I'm sure it really does. And so at this point, you have those out there going, nah, I don't want any of this modernist cuisine, molecular gastronomy nonsense. Give me a ham sandwich. I'd much rather have a ham sandwich than a 20-course Michelin meal, as somebody said in the paper this week. Uh, there are others out there who say, no, no, I'm like a real chef. Uh, it's just about the ingredients, the sourcing, the preparation, the presentation, the cooking, and that's it. There's nothing else. And I'm not going for these smokes and light and mirrors and distraction because uh, I'm really about the food, and that's it. And, and all these other chefs, they really can't be very good chefs if they're doing all this other stuff. I think that's sort of fundamentally wrong. And if you look at many of those chefs who claim to be sort of slow and organic and free-range and uh, are not playing with any of the psychology, it turns out they are... They just don't realise it, in a way. Uh, so we have chefs in, in, here in the UK who are more resistant to this approach. And you look at their restaurant, which happens to be situated in a country house hotel, surrounded by beautiful countryside with wood panels, and you know, without having to go to that restaurant, that they're not going to be serving you your dinner with plastic knife and fork. I bet it's silver and heavy. Uh, so they are intuitively using these sort of techniques uh, or think about those sort of you know, healthy, fresh uh, restaurants with lots of vegetables parked along the, along the corridors and in the windows, giving you that sort of natural feel. They're not playing these games, are they? I think, of course, they are, because as soon as you see all that fresh produce, your mind is primed to think something different about the contents. So whatever we eat, wherever we eat, we always eat somewhere. There's a certain kind of light level, a certain kind of noise in the background, a certain smell, a certain temperature. We're sitting on a certain kind of chair or standing up, and we're eating from a thing, a glass, a bottle, a plate, a bowl, and all of these things impact, to a greater or lesser extent, the tasting experience, and you cannot uh, ignore them much uh, as you wish to. Even those chefs, if you go back to the 1970s, kind of the white cube mentality in the arts, but also in high-end restaurant cuisine, it was all about you know, white tablecloths, white walls, no paintings, no music, no scent, no nothing, just the food. But that sets its own kind of expectations. It's sending a message to you, uh, just like any other kind of environment is, that will change your expectations and hence your taste uh, of uh, the food. And so you can stick your head in the sand and say, I don't care about this, uh, even though you're using it without realising it. Or maybe you want to systematically study the factors that affect what we choose, what we enjoy, and what we come back for seconds of. Um, and this is going to kind of switch then from, from, from the uh, individual restaurant, the Michelin star or San Pellegrino Top 50, into the mainstream chain restaurants, we're getting increasingly interested in the gastrophysics, in the environmental factors that affect uh, the experience. Wondering, should we have hard seats or soft? Will that make people go quicker or slower? What music should we play? What lighting level do we want, bright or dim? Should we have a scent or not? Um, and, and, and so the data out there uh, from these kind of largest scale studies is frightening or exciting, depending on your viewpoint. But I'd point to examples such as in... Um, company's house, kind of the hard rock uh, cafe sort of mission statement, which is, we play loud, fast music. We have no windows in our restaurant, so we can control the environment, and we know that people will drink significantly, maybe 27% more under those conditions. 
Uh, so we're controlling our environment to change people's behavior. I think of studies done by Adrian North in Leicester supermarkets where you have some French wine, some German wine on the table, uh, in, in, on the shelves, and one day or one week you play French music, the accordion music, because if you're on the banks of the River Seine, the next day or week you play German umpire music, you can imagine yourself in a beer keller, and you just look at sales. What happens? The sales radically change between French and German wine, depending on the music playing. 75% French wine sold with French music. 75% German wine sold on those days with German music playing. Complete transformation in people's purchasing behaviour. But not just that. When you ask them, when they come away from the till, you know that music, uh, did that affect why you bought French wine today? Of course not. I was always going to make a beef bourguignon tonight, and uh, this would be the perfect, and German wine just wouldn't do. They all say that. Only six out of the 50 who were questioned admitted that the music had any impact. The data from the behaviour clearly shows that it does, but none of us are aware of just how much. Or I think of examples from... Um, uh, 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 colleagues who work in the casinos in, in Las Vegas and thereabouts, kind of an interesting sensory space, remove again the lighting from outside, remove the clocks to, 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 to do strange things to your perception of time, and they have kind of the food courts, maybe free, maybe not with you know, French and, and, and Italian and Mexican cuisine, and I have my colleagues who work on the, on the sound design for those spaces saying, you know, sometimes it's hard to predict, you know, sometimes people come in and they're all queuing up for a bit of a Mexican, and there's nobody on the Italian stand, it's like really inefficient uh, what they do is put on a bit of Dean Martin over the tunnel, and suddenly whoosh, everyone's queuing up for, for Italian. And they can sort of systematically manage people flow through that space without their realisation, simply by playing the music that matches uh, the taste uh, or, or that it's associated in our mind with that kind of uh, region uh, of the world. So there's a lot of this going on, and you can be sort of afraid or excited by it. Uh, better to know about it and what's going on and the factors that influence us than just to stick your head in the sand and say, oh, no, no, I, I don't want to know. It, it can't be true. It, it really is. And I think the big companies are, 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 are looking to optimise it, both to, to, to bias our choice, to bias how much we choose to consume, um, but then hopefully to enhance the experience at the moment of tasting and thereafter. And this is where the, kind of the idea of, um, of stiction comes in. For myself and many of my colleagues who spent many years just studying in the moment as you're eating something, what does it taste like to you now? How much do you enjoy that mouthful? But really our food experiences, the good ones at least, they only last for an hour or two, or if you're in a very fancy restaurant, maybe four hours at the fat duck and it's over. And that's it. Meal's gone. But what kicks in afterwards is the memory of that meal. And beforehand, the expectation, the anticipation as you book before you go, talking about it with people. So it's the expectation, the memories that are key, and it's the memories of our good meals that determine whether we go back, not the perception we had at the moment. And you might think that uh, surely memory is just like, I remember what happened at the time, more or less. It's a bit weaker, and I forget some stuff, but that's it. But in fact, the whole area of, kind of memory research from psychology says no. Our brains are subject to all manner of tricks of the mind. We forget some things, we remember other things. Maybe we remember the first dish, we remember the last dish. Um, and so you might want to start engineering meals to create as many sticky moments. They're hopefully pleasant at the time, but most importantly, will stick in people's memories. And when they're thinking two, three, four weeks later, where shall I go tonight? When somebody asks them, where, what would you recommend? It's the memory of the meal that will determine what they say. So for somebody like uh, a Pizza Hut are working in this space, a big chain, asking their consumers a few weeks after they've been, uh, what do you remember about when you came to the Pizza Hut? Yeah. Was it the topics? Was it the uh, service? Was it, uh... And it turns out the thing that people sticks in people's minds, and this maybe says more about the pizzas than anything else, is how warmly they were welcomed when they walked through the door. 
That's what sticks in people's minds. That's what determines a repeat uh, purchase of behavior. And if you know that, then you're in a better place to instruct your staff about what to do in order to create those sticky memories. Maybe you think about the tasting menu, all those multiple courses. Why has that become such a thing these days? Well, it makes perfect sense from the science of stiction and engineering memories because one big course, I'll remember the first mouthful, and after that, my brain will switch off. The rest of it is wasted. Opportunity. If I give you 10, 15, 20 courses, each new course is a potential hook for memory, for stiction. Um, and we'd work with uh, uh, Joseph Youssef and, uh, uh, and Lulu here from, from Kitchen Theory. They've also been asking questions at their diners uh, and report that people will remember kind of the theatrics of service. So when Lulu comes around and sprays the smell of the earth over the food, that's what, what, the, what the diners really remember and sticks in their mind. They remember they like the dish. Maybe they can't quite remember what was in the dish. They think they can, but they kind of confabulate that. But it's the theatrics of the experience uh, that stick and stay uh, and create those sticky memories. Okay, what else? Um, Back in to the food itself um, and to the world of uh, food porn. If you think that the pleasures of the table reside mainly in the mind, not in the mouth, and that the brain has evolved to find and forage nutritious, energy-dense foods, then uh, what well, um, uh, I think it sort of explains the current trend towards beautiful plating, gastroporn, food porn. The 40% of us who now, whenever we go out to eat, can't help but take a picture of the dish and share it with our social networks. It explains the fact that my colleagues who are kind of uh, cocktail makers in the Middle East now who say, it's bizarre. People are coming into my um, cocktail bar and they say, I want that. <laughs> I say, do you know what it is? Do you, do you, even, do you even like you know, coffee liqueur? Uh, I just want that. Do you know what? They have no idea what it is, but it's... We'll share the picture, and that is driving their behavior. That's driving things like you, think this, you see at the top right here from a Tel Aviv restaurant. You know, because sometimes it can be hard to get the right angle for your shot of the dish. So why not create a plate where your, your, your mobile device can sit nuzzle in the edge of the plate with a curved back so you get the perfect backdrop every time for your dish. Um, and it sort of explains why uh, here uh, a picture of somebody's brain, a hungry person's brain... Uh, while they're seeing pictures of the, what, what we know is their favourite food. Maybe we're wafting the aroma under their nose and they're talking about the act of eating it. Uh, so the hungry brain, uh, uh, when seeing pictures of desirable foods, will uh, lead to about a 25% in cerebral blood flow, a far larger blood flow than anything else, I think any other stimulus that's ever been used. Food, food drives the brain more than anything. And the brain, the body's most bloodthirsty organ... of mass and 25% of energy consumption, that's an expensive thing to keep going, and yet it is food that really excites the brain, and maybe that's why uh, this kind of emergence of of the gastroporn. And it's sort of, you know, go back to the 60s, and you find the French, famous French chefs uh, talking about a time when, you know, we just plonk the food on the plate, just as if you do it at home. No consideration for eye appeal. It all changes with um, Nouvelle Cuisine, big plates, small servings, Uh, Beautiful for the eye. But what does it really do to the tasting experience and behavior? That's where the gastrophysics, I think, comes in. Um, And in a dish uh, we've been working on with a Franco-Colombian young chef, Charles Michel. Um, He created this uh, Kandinsky uh, on on, on a canvas. So you've got Kandinsky's painting 201 hanging in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It actually hangs, anyone who's familiar with it, the other way up. But when the chef saw that kind of mushroom-shaped thing up there, he just knew... On the canvas, the mushroom had to be upright for it to work well. So if you excuse the chef that uh, liberty of uh, inverting the picture, then here's his 31-element salad, all healthy stuff. 
that's a very different tasting experience that's beautiful to the eye, that raises questions about whether food can ever be art and are chefs artists or, or not. Um, and we do the research in the lab, but also in the restaurant setting to demonstrate that that salad will taste significantly better uh, when it looks beautiful. And it's not about the effort that went into it. It's not just about that. Because if we take all the elements and arrange them side by side like soldiers, that's a really effortful plating, but you won't rate it very highly. You won't be willing to pay very much for it, and you won't consume as much uh, as you might with this uh, uh, beautiful presentation. And here are the numbers from 150 persons sitting in Somerville College, Oxford, when the uh, uh, parents, uh, the uh, proud parents came to visit their, their, their offspring at college. Uh, 2015, we've got 150 covers at once, so you can't do quite the full Kandinsky plating, but I think you get the idea here. The same ingredients, tossed salad on the right, as you might see it, do it at home or in a restaurant. Same ingredients, uh, laid out in a, in a Kandinsky-esque manner, and how much more people were willing to pay for exactly the same ingredients, exactly the same day, in exactly the same place. Uh, of course, it takes a bit more time to do the plating on the left than a tossed salad. But then that's just a, an economic decision. How much does it cost me to pay somebody to plate things up? And can I make a bigger profit by doing it uh, for the eye? But it's kind of a sort of systematic scientific approach that is not constraining uh, the, the creativity of the artist or of the chef, but just putting a number on it uh, and assessing what things really do work and which ones uh, don't. So the Kandinsky salad was a starter. Uh, and you can go through any aspect of plating, asymmetric centered plating like this. I see lots of chefs out there um, who start, for, for the last few years, have started putting all the food on just one side of the plate. <laughs> like the rest of it's all blank. What's going on with that? Uh, it doesn't obey any of the, uh, any of the rules we've learned from you know, the study of the psychology of, of, of painting about balance and harmony. It seems all wrong. You ask the chefs, well, I don't know, I just feel, I feel like it's the right thing to do. When we test it in the restaurant, well, in Somerville College, I should say, this is not really high-end cuisine. Uh, braised ox cheek, seasonal vegetables, uh, same food, just positioned centrally or uh, offset, and you can see the difference in willingness to pay for exactly the same dish. And now you can go from the very high-end of, of the Kandinsky uh, version to something you might serve at home uh, to your family, and just the difference in, in enjoyment uh, uh, and uh, value from these sort of simple principles. And we can go through all sorts of aspects of, of plating, odd or even numbers on the plate, because chefs are told if you're serving scallops, it should be odd numbers on the plate, not even. If you're a Japanese ornamental garden maker, it's you know, odd numbers of stones and rocks, not even. If you're a German flower seller, it's odd numbers of flowers, never even. Does it make a difference? Well, when we tested that in the Science Museum, 50,000 people said, no, I prefer of two plates the one that's got more food. Odd or even, I really don't care. It's all about you know, uh, the, 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 the quantity. Um, and beyond the plating, uh, which I could go on about at great extent, I want to come to the uh, plate itself, because this is kind of bizarre and strange. Uh, okay, can you taste the plate? Well, of course you can't. Can the plate affect the taste? It most certainly can. And this from work with uh, uh, Foran Adria's uh, research centre, Alicia Foundation, uh, just outside Barcelona in Spain, another of the world's great uh, chefs. And this time it really is a strawberry mousse you're looking at, so you can relax there. Served it uh, in their test facilities, Half the diners um, started eating it from the black plate, and then were given a, a, uh, a scoop on the white plate, the other half of the diners in the reverse order. Tell me how sweet that mousse tastes. Tell me how flavorful. Tell me how enjoyable you, you found it. Uh, and one of those plates makes this dessert taste sweeter. From the plate on the right, people rate that as tasting 7% sweeter, 13% uh, more flavorful, and 9% more enjoyable than exactly the same uh, a batch of ice cream or mousse uh, served from the black plate. This is 2012. 
Anyway, I think, oh, I'm not sure I can believe that, really. But roll the clocks forward to 27 now, 2017, and I could give you 30 different published studies from Greenland, from Taiwan, from Australia, and beyond, all showing that plate colour really does change the taste. Is there a perfect plate colour? Well, it really depends on what's on the plate, and it depends on what sort of taste buds that you've got. But everyone seems to agree you can make things spicier, sweeter, uh, as a result of the plate colour. Is it because maybe they think those, those pinks look a bit different on the two plates, kind of colour contrast? Or is it because somewhere in your mind you keep a track record of every meal you've ever had and every um, uh, uh, plate it ever came on? And maybe you've just been exposed to an awful lot of cheese on slate. For that very reason, angular black plates make you think it's going to be savoury a little bit more, nudge you in that direction. That changes the expectation, that changes the experience. It works in Italy. We worked um, with the Paul Bacuse Cookery School in Lyon, France, traditional, heart of French traditional cuisine, and they too find the same thing in their restaurants. You really can taste the plate. Found in, with work with the modernist chefs, the kind of inspiration, experimental space, but how are we going to take it to the mainstream, uh, and why should we care about it at home? Uh, and why should the food companies care about it? Well, I think... If you're in a supermarket chain, maybe you're selling a million plastic spoons to go with your yogurts and lunch bags every day, and you've probably never, ever thought about the colour of the spoon or the yoghurt pot in which that yoghurt comes. It makes a difference. The yoghurt you see here from a study we did a couple of years ago will taste different uh, as a function of the colour of the spoon that you taste it from. The perfect colour, it will require some experimentation, but that the colour matters is clear, and that the food companies haven't thought about this is also clear. But they're starting to realise that the, sort of the, the flavour experience is about the science of everything else, not just what goes in the mouth, but how it gets there, uh, and there is a scientific approach to help uh, study it. And I'll close a little bit. A case a little bit closer to my heart um, is there a hospital food. We hear a lot about obesity, and that's certainly a big problem, uh, and maybe the gastrophysics approach can help there. But at the other end of the spectrum, I see a lot of concern about those who are in care facilities, uh, those who are in hospitals, many of whom are clinically uh, uh, underfed, clinically malnourished, if not when they went in, certainly if and when they come out of those facilities. Uh, and that malnourishment leads to prolonged bed stays in the hospital. So we can take a, you know, kind of a, a modernist chef can be flown in to try and spruce up cuisine, fresh ingredients, picked herbs from the garden, that sort of thing. And that will work for a moment. It will make for a good TV. I just don't think it will last in the long term. It's too expensive to implement. So what we need here is kind of a solution that maybe is cost-effective. If you do this, you can actually save money. If you can increase the quality of consumption of your patients, then you can reduce the number of bed nights that they stay. That's a kind of an economically sensible story. And we see some evidence uh, going in that direction. This from a study um, in Salisbury District Hospital that showed uh, there that they could get people to eat about 30% more food simply by serving it on a blue plate rather than on the traditional uh, white plate. And you can kind of see the problem on the right. All that hospital food tends to be sort of washed out pale colours and against a white background, maybe with somebody with impaired vision, it's just impossible to see what's really there. And if you can't see it, you've lost half the battle to get people to eat it. Enhance the colour contrast and all of a sudden... Uh, you can improve consumption and maybe reduce days, save a little money, and have a long-term kind of uh, solution there. More work to be done, but I think it's very exciting to see this kind of research uh, here and, again, in other hospitals around the world with many start-up companies now thinking about colourful cutlery, colourful plateware uh, to help people uh, stay independent, perhaps for a little longer. And then there's the cutlery. We sort of mentioned, uh, in passing the cutlery, um, and I think this is the, the great unresearched area because whenever food gets from the plate to our mouth it had to get there somehow it didn't fly into our mouths 
We either held it in our hands, and maybe eating with our hands does change the taste of food. There are a number of restaurants out there now starting to challenge diners to eat without cutlery uh, for this reason. Or maybe it's something like this, the final course, counting sheep at the Fat Ducks uh, uh, recent renovated uh, menu and restaurant in Bray. Uh, the dessert I kind of ate before I, I thought to pick up the picture. But you can imagine it was sort of floating in midair off screen. Um, but when you see that spoon there, it's not a regular spoon. It's not what you'd expect to see in a three Michelin star restaurant. Um, and, and, and your brain, just like it predicts the flavour of food, it predicts what effort and how easy it would be to pick up that spoon. But I can guarantee you it's much heavier than your brain is expecting it to be. And it's also kind of furry. And this is a nod to F.T. Marinetti, who would have his tactile dinner parties in the 1930s, inviting people to come and wearing different textured materials, pyjamas of silk and satin and velvet, and you'd eat there, eating his food, uh, while rubbing your neighbour's gym jams. Does that change the taste? Does that? Um, so here you've got it in a slightly better manner, where you've got a textured uh, spoon, here in a three-Michelin top-of-the-world restaurant, that is weighted based on our research, showing that the heavier the thing you hold in the hand, the better stuff tastes the more satisfying it is. I can add weight to the bottom of a can of Coke. I can add weight to the bottom of a box of chocolates. I can add weight to a wine bottle, and many do. Or I can add weight to the cutlery, and that will enhance the tasting experience. Um, it won't, you know, um, uh, take terrible food and make it uh, uh, marvellous, as uh, kind of illustrated by this Pew cartoon. The mother-in-law's cookery, even with the heaviest cutlery in the world, will still be disappointing. But it can, it can shift your perceptions, your expectations and your perception and enjoyment by 5, 10 or 15% in the right direction. And if you're one of those people who are wanting to, 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 to you know, um, limit their weight but not spend life being starved and hungry, then again, um, we're working with the food industry because they're finding that they're having to lightweight product packaging. The product packaging that, that, that is where we have a third of our food and drink. And as they lightweight the packaging, uh, our brain can't quite separate the package from the product and hence we need to eat more. If you can add weight to the packaging, people will be satisfied with less. There's kind of a trade-off here between environmental sustainability uh, and what we know psychologically can uh, enhance both the experience, the quality, but also perhaps potentially uh, satiety. So the fat duck spoon's great. Uh, is it the best optimal solution? I'm not sure that it is necessarily. Uh, it's a step along the way. It's interesting. It gets people to think. I think the texture changes the taste. I think the weight changes the taste experience of what is a great tasting dish already. But how's it going to go to mainstream? That's a real challenge here, I think, because uh, I guess the fat duck aren't going to start selling on, on Amazon you know, furry, furry spoons anytime soon. Uh, and you'll see other designers out there challenging the space of what cutlery could be, uh, what metals, materials, uh, textures and shapes. But those are kind of one-off pieces for art installations, exhibits and the like. So it's something like this from Studio Willen that gets me excited because it's kind of a transition object. Um, you can buy these spoons uh, uh, in some uh, department stores now. Um, they've got different textures. I'm convinced that they will change the tasting experience. What food would taste best from which spoon? That's an experiment that's currently underway, but it will create a more memorable tasting experience. That maybe the texture and the surprise of the dimples on that top spoon under your tongue will maybe get your brain to think it's fuller sooner. Um, and that these things are in the marketplace is kind of exciting. Because I really sort of worry that even if we knew what the perfect shape for a bit of cutlery was, like neuroscience-inspired cutlery design, maybe it would never make it to the mainstream unless we can get it out into the mainstream. And that maybe it'll be like the QWERTY keyboard all over again, that we all know that we could type faster and better with a different layout of the keys 
It's just none of us can quite work up the energy to change the arrangement and so type better. So we know there's something better, we just don't do it. How can we make sure in this case, if we know that there is something better than the traditional cutlery that has not changed for a century, uh, we can make sure that people will change their behavior. And maybe it is through giving people experiences in those modernist restaurants, perhaps, that will uh, enhance the uh, taste. Glassware, we could say the same about uh, 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 two, but um, maybe I won't embarrass my host with the, with the wine glass I was served before this talk this evening. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but this, I can assure you, did change. It's a very nice wine, but it did change the taste of the wine. Um, and then I have my, uh, my brother, a wine aficionado, who sort of describes the cases of you know, very expensive wine from his cellar, uh, taken to a Swiss hotel, drunk surreptitiously late at night from the plastic kind of bathroom cup. He's had many bottles of this wine before. This is one of his favourites. He knows what it tastes like, but he just cannot enjoy it from that plastic cup. It's just not quite the same. And again, every time we've drunk something, it didn't just get into our mouth. There was a glass, a cup, a beaker, a bottle, a can involved. And yet, look in the science journals, and there's virtually no research on glassware, except as it applies to wine, and even there are only 10 published studies. Hugely important, but understudied. Can be studied, and you can enhance the design uh, moving forward. So I think we're going to see a lot more textured, dimpled, angular, rounded uh, cups, hopefully uh, quite heavy. Then to um, move us towards the end, um, taking us away from the earth to uh, up there, one of the other environments that we study, and that is one of the chapters in the book, Airline Food, the thing that, again, we all know never tastes great, that no one comes off an aeroplane, no matter which class you're sitting in, saying, wow, that was the best meal I've ever had. It just doesn't, doesn't happen. They have all the star chefs making the menus for airline food. It just doesn't seem to translate. There's something missing there. Um, I think it's not really about the food. It's about the everything else. It's about the atmosphere. It's about the dry air. It's about the low uh, air pressure. And it's also about the engine noise, 80 decibels or thereabouts, 80 to 90 decibels of engine noise that we know from the gastrophysics research suppresses your ability to taste. But it doesn't suppress your ability to taste everything. That's the really interesting thing. Airplane noise only suppresses your taste of sweet and, to a lesser degree, salt. It actually enhances your ability to taste umami, that fifth taste, the proteinaceous taste you find in Parmesan cheese, in mushrooms, in tomatoes. So next time uh, you're up in an airplane, I'd encourage you just to watch as the drinks trolley uh, comes uh, slowly wheeling down uh, the alleyway and see how many people order a tomato juice. I can tell you, because Lufthansa have done the studies, that there are a quarter of of passengers who will only ever order a Bloody Mary or a tomato juice in the air, who would never think of touching it on the ground. Something strange going on there, and it's all about the gastrophysics, it's all about the fact that the airplane noise enhances the taste of umami. So tomato juice, uh, which has umami, Bloody Mary, which also has the Worcester sauce, a double umami hit, is actually the only drink that really stands up well at altitude, and somehow we're kind of self-medicating when we order that drink up there, but not down on the earth. If you know the science then what you can do is start to introduce um, umami-rich menus, as British Airways did in 2013. You can announce it to the passengers, or not. I was on a flight the other day, and it had lamb, it had anchovies, it had mushrooms, it was like an umami overdrive. It was there without being mentioned, but clearly somebody had been paying attention to the research. And maybe if we do more of it, uh, many more of us will have uh, better experiences up there. They're not just about the food, it's about understanding the everything else. It's not just about the food, it's about the sounds And once I've taken away, if I can take away the aeroplane noise with some noise-cancelling headphones, shouldn't that make the food taste better? Yes, it does. Uh, And once I've taken away the background noise of the engines, what can I put in its place? Well, maybe in work we did with British Airways, uh, they came up with a sound bites menu. 
that you can order something on the long-haul flight and then tune into the channel on the headset, and there's music specially chosen to enhance the taste of the food. Maybe it's Pavarotti with a bit of Italian, uh, 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 Jamie Blunt with um, dessert, apparently. Um, and again, we have the research to say it will make things taste slightly uh, uh, and perhaps significantly better than elsewhere. Maybe you didn't experience that and it's no longer in the plains, but maybe you saw the Haagen-Dazs version where you go to the store, you buy your tub of ice cream, you scan the label on your mobile device, and you can see some musicians playing over the top of your ice cream tub. This is kind of bringing the whole new world of, of sonic seasoning uh, to uh, us. It's coming to us also through... Uh, it's true, we've done the research. 750 people said Chinese food tastes better with Taylor Swift. Um, uh, uh, Justin Bieber, he came out bottom for, for Thai, for Chinese, for Japanese, for Indian, and, and, and for uh, something else kind of food. Uh, this is how it's going to come to our, all our homes, I think, is maybe from food delivery services who are delivering the raw ingredients for your meal or delivering the restaurant meals to your home, your weekly shop. Why not bring the food, the ingredients, together with a CD or a download of the music that you know will enhance the ethnicity of whatever it is you're trying to cook? And this is how things can come to, I think, uh, the mainstream that they come in a way that you might think about as sort of sense-sploration, this kind of surprising, playful interaction between the senses that sometimes doesn't intuitively make sense, then when you think about it, do the research, uh, it uh, does. Um, and it will come to you in the air, on the front of your ice cream tub, with your weekly shopping delivery. Not she started there, but as I come back again and again, because it was started in kind of the, the modernist uh, restaurant space, uh, and all of those examples I've just shown you sprang out of a dish that was served at the House of Wolf in Islington, North London, a few years ago. Sensory tasting menu uh, with a dessert. Uh, the Sonic Cake Pop. Uh, please take out your phone, dial 0845 680 something, 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 uh, and either listen to the bitter or the sweet sound. Sounds strange. Here's a diner in the restaurant eating their uh, bittersweet chocolate lolly. And they're either listening to bitter or sweet music. Can't be literally sweet or bitter, because bitter and sweet don't have a music attached, but maybe you can have a, a sense of what taste that might be. And this, the other soundtrack they might be listening to. More bitter, more sweet. Sweet. We've asked people in the UK, in Germany, in India, in Australia, uh, and 80 to 85% will say this is a sweeter sound than the first one. And we've done the research with the Fat Duck Research Kitchens in Bray and in the Psychology Lab in Oxford to show that we can add about 5 to 10% sweetness to that chocolate simply by playing sweet music. As a one-off experience, started proof of principle here. No one would have believed that until they tried it. British Airways came, they loved it, put it in the air. And uh, colleagues over in Vietnam now who are saying, yeah, I can see a health implication for this, not just a kind of a sensory marketing uh, sort of gimmickry. So if you go to Vietnam, you may come across the um, Jin Cafe, which is offering sonic sweeteners. So the cakes, the, the, the drinks... Add less sugar, just put the headphones on, it'll be a continuous soundtrack of sweet music. Sounds wonderful. Who wouldn't want that? Same sweet taste without the calories. Ought to be a winner. I should add a caveat here, which is that I only know that these effects work in the short term, for an hour, for a day. Do they work for a month? If, I listen to, if you put sweet music on every lunchtime for a year, would it still work? I have no idea. But some people who are going in that direction uh, imagine that it, that, it, that it will do. Um, I think we'll just have to wait uh, and uh, see. And finally, um, uh, uh, how does this sort of spin out into, into the mainstream uh, of food and beverage products? 
Well, not only do tastes have sounds, they also have shapes and colours and textures and instruments attached. This is kind of the sort of synesthetic world of kind of correspondences, sensory marketing, but has a potential implication as shown here, because we found in 2011 that if people associate sweet-tasting foods with round shapes, sour and bitter-tasting foods are more angular. Not literally, but it just sort of makes sense to people angular and bitter and, and sweet is round. If you know that, then if you make your food product rounder, it will taste sweeter to people. That's what we said in 2011. Roll on 2014 and you see Cadbury changing the shape of the iconic chocolate bar from angular to rounded, shaving off 3.4 grams in the process but keeping the, the frontage the same. Uh, see what people said? You know, they, they wrote in and complained, stop it, you're messing with our favourite brands. Uh, what's changed? You're making it creamier and sweeter, more sugary, they said. And then you have the, the, the representative from Mondelez saying, no, we did not change the formulation at all. All we did was change the shape. And you said it tasted sweeter and creamier. And we'd predicted that three years before. It's so kind of a nice real-world example. And now when you look in the, in the newspapers and see all those other food companies playing with their 3D food printers and making the roses now coming out rounder, maybe you know what's going on in somebody's mind. And the hope here is... That the food companies know if you reduce the unhealthy ingredients, consumers complain, say, put it back the way it was, stop it. We know we should be reduced the unhealthy ingredients. We know that if you do that, consumers uh, uh, move away from your brand. But maybe with some of these gastrophysics findings about sounds and shapes of taste, you can have a sweeter-looking shaped chocolate, reduce the sugar, and keep the experience uh, in the mind of the consumer uh, exactly uh, the same. And finally, what about all that? What, what can I do at home? Uh, take some of the insights that are in the book uh, to improve my home experience. And there are lots of things, I think, for those who want to eat a little less. One of the most studied uh, is just from the Delberth illusion here, just serving from smaller plates. You can sort of tell here that you know, one of those plates of food looks like it's larger, more food than the other. In fact, it's exactly the same food on both plates. But serving from smaller plates make it look like there's a larger amount of food, uh, and that may trick your brain into eating less. Uh, very simple, very well studied in a number of uh, markets. Or maybe you think about uh, tomorrow morning when you're sitting down for your breakfast and you've got your cereal box out. Um, how, much do you, how do you decide how many cereals to pour into the bowl? Or maybe there's kind of a, a consumption norm set by the serving suggestion on the front of pack. On average, these serving suggestions are three times above the recommended suggestion you find on the back. And again, you can see some of the work that's ongoing uh, with Olivia Petit, uh, one of the students that uh, Frederic and I have been co-supervising over the last few years, looking at how you can play with the illusion with rim size to try and change the um, perception, the expectation, and then behavior in uh, the home uh, environment. And the last thing, it's got to be the easiest, the most obvious, just turn the TV off. Anything you can do to make people focus on the food will uh, enhance the experience. And all those studies out there from the last 10 or 15 years say... If you have the TV on when you're eating, you'll be consuming 15 to 25, maybe even 35% more food than with the TV off. Depends what the show is, depends if it's a repeat or not, uh, but it's clearly true. That's probably the simplest single thing uh, that you could do to... Um, uh, uh, do. Now, many more things in the book that I don't have time to talk about, about personalization, sort of fascinating both in the consumer marketing space, but also in the top restaurant space, how meals are being personalized just to you, to your taste profile, to your genetic profile. Uh, so a lot of interest in sort of theatrical dining, um, as we have Jesse Dunford Wood here from Parlour in Kensal uh, Rise, uh, North London, Northwest London. Uh, see a lot of interest, another chapter on social dining, 
how many of us now have how many of our meals by ourselves? Maybe in Japan now, 70% of meals by pensioners are eaten in isolation by themselves. And that has very negative consequences on health outcomes, under-eating at one end, over-eating at the other extreme. And I see a lot of interest in that. There's also a chapter on the future of food, hence this kind of Marley or one of these uh, maker-shaker robots that they're promising for £60,000 you could have in your own home that will make dinner and do the washing up all without you having to do anything. Is that the future or not? Have we lost something about real cuisine here? Why not just buy something from the production line, if that's what you want, a perfectly uh, replicable process? Um, and that maybe we're going to sort of see a, a, a mashup of these different sectors here. So I think about the solo dining, and I think about technology. It doesn't take me to this. I don't believe that's the future. It takes me to things like this. Munchies. Uh, a mukbang. There are a million people, apparently in Korea these days, who are dining alone but who are using their technology to have like a virtual dinner companion. So we have these broadcast jockeys who have tens or hundreds of thousands of followers who just eat food in front of the camera. You you make your food, you start eating, and you tune in. Uh, So is this distracting you, making you eat 35% more, like if you're watching an episode of Friends, or is it more like a social dining encounter? And you'll see that they've got... um, they're not actually the most beautiful people, they're attractive. It's really about the food, these sort of huge bowls of food that these broadcast jockeys will eat, consume, fried chicken, noodles and stuff. There's something very strange going on here about social dining technology and more gastrophysics uh, to be done. Uh, and very finally, what I think the future may be is not the robots, it's not the 3D food printer, it's more about repositioning everyday technologies, maybe your uh, cinema set um, and delivering some augmented cuisine protein here. Here's sushi, the same on both sides. Simply by putting your hand over the food, if you've got the headset on, we can render, together with Katsuo Okajima in Japan, uh, this perfectly textured fish. So maybe in a few years' time, when we have fished the seas to extinction of some of our preferred uh, sushi fish, maybe we'll be having the virtual or the augmented experience. Um, And maybe it's things like this. uh, All those sort of tablets that so many restaurants thought it was a good idea, you know. You don't have to speak to a waiter. You just type in your order on a tablet, and it goes to the kitchen. They can't get it wrong. It's going to be perfect. Apart from we all know I hate ordering from a tablet menu. I want the social interaction. That's why I'm going out, in part. So a lot of these restaurants have all of these tablets that they don't know what to do with anymore. They bought them from the menu. They figured out it doesn't work because dining is a fundamentally social activity. So what? So maybe you can reposition them as plateware. They're waterproof. Uh, and this is Andreas Caminada, just probing the design space, kind of an ironic take. Two Michelin-star Swiss restaurant, uh, serving your dinner off a tablet that looks like a white plate. So why bother? Or maybe it's back to the sounds of the sea, where you not only see the sea, you can also hear it and see it shimmering under you. And so for each and every dish you might serve, maybe your tablet will figure out the perfect background colour to enhance uh, the tasting uh, experience. So I'll leave things there, um, but hopefully giving you a sense of why I'm so excited about gastrophysics, the new science of eating, why what uh, you may read about happening in the world's top restaurants can, is, and will percolate down through brands, uh, uh, chain restaurants, then to the mainstream, to the home, to the air, uh, and to kind of the hospital and care environment. Uh, and I, I'm hopeful that this kind of sensory nudging of people's perception, behaviour, uh, w- will help us in some small way uh, work towards uh, tackling the obesity crisis. It will, in some maybe slightly larger way, help to improve the quality of food and care. Homes are, are a large and growing problem, and maybe in the, in the top case here we have this bee and the pollen, um, pollen and the bee dish I started with, which is all about kind of moving people to more sustainable sources of food. So this kind of an insect-based dish with uh, honey and pollen, 
um, and the vanilla sort of um, um, uh, relying um, on the bee. Uh, and that how are we going to get people towards that sustainable, progenaceous, good for the planet, insect matter? It's not by me telling you it's good for you. It's not by me telling you it's good for the planet. It will come about through the top chefs, figuring out how to make it the most tasty meal you've ever had. You'll try it in a restaurant like maybe Kitchen Theory, and then maybe you'll try it at home. You'll try it in some small startup brands, and maybe taking everything we've learned about the, the power and the impact of the everything else on our dining and food experiences, we might be in a better place to help nudge us all along that. Uh, maybe not desirable yet, but one of these days, crunchy, proteinaceous, uh, and good for you uh, food future. Thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to take questions. So if you do have any questions, yes, right here. Thank you so much for your talk. It's made me really hungry for a second dinner. Um, I have two questions for you, actually, if that's all right. Um, my first question is in terms of expectations and visual representation of food and food enjoyment. Now, I'm just wondering if you studied the factors involved in the popularity of fast food chains when I'm assuming that the expectation is sort of low when you're walking into a McDonald's and your threshold for pleasure and visual presentation is also low. Um, and my second question is to do with the tomato juice and the umami sensation yep. in aircrafts. I am just wondering whether um, there was any studies done in terms of the psychology of fear, because I do remember almost psychology of fear. fear. Almost ten years ago, I think there was one lady who had DVT, deep vein thrombosis, yes. on a flight, and I think there was this widespread study that said if you drink tomato juice, the oxalate in it is a blood thinner. So I wonder if that was something that factored into the tomato juice becoming so popular, or was it just the fact that it tastes killer? Uh, so I haven't heard about the, uh, the deep vein thrombosis story. Um, in relation to the beer, uh, Qantas just came out with a craft uh, brewed beer this week uh, to be served on their long-haul flights, specially um, uh, uh, created for the atmosphere at altitude. So people are starting to think about that. I also see some of those, um, maybe sort of wine might be a more common uh, uh, drink, say, to go with a meal in the air. And they're kind of a, an interesting line at the moment, thinking about which wines work best. Maybe they're not the, the traditional French uh, 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 wine houses uh, products. But instead, some of the New World wines seem to taste better at altitude. And there, if you look at it, sometimes uh, some of those New World producers are actually uh, growing the grapes and making the wine at about six to 8,000 feet above sea level on the side of the hills, which is just the same cabin air pressure you get effectively, and maybe that's why those sort of uh, drinks taste better. Um, we go to the first part about uh, uh, sort of the fast food chains. Uh, I think they are thinking about this. They, on the one hand, thinking about uh, sort of plateware. Maybe they have a sort of standard, uh, maybe so a wood board, or it's a plate of a certain color. Maybe it's a branded color. Then what color should that be? Uh, so I know a number of them are doing the research to say, uh, you know, our what would be the best, make our foods, our typical portfolio of foods stand out uh, best. And the thing with the lasagna is um, uh, the next stage after uh, uh, yolk, uh, uh, gastro porn is yolk porn. Uh, and um, so sort of, sort of protein in motion shots are huge. So our brain can't uh, resist uh, things that move, are more attractive to it than things that are stationary. Moving things capture our attention uh, and sort of uh, energy-dense, uh, proteinaceous uh, foods in motion are even more attention-capturing. 
And so if you look at some of the uh, advertising, uh, you will see a lot of these sort of oozing egg yolks. And that kind of movement is, is really powerful to the brain. Or when I was coming up the uh, escalator at King's Cross a few weeks ago, they had a whole set of lasagnas being uh, sort of taken out of a deep dish tray with all the melting, gooey cheese kind of dripping down. It was sort of protein in motion again uh, and irresistible to the brain. And again, maybe sort of worryingly that some of the marketeers are, are, are becoming more aware of those most powerful of triggers that in a way it's kind of dangerous for us because we sort of see it on TV or we see the, uh, all those food cookery shows and think, well, actually, I'm not going to make the food I saw. I just like watching the TV cookery chef. And yet those shows making healthy food look good on TV is a bit harder. Most of those chefs' uh, recipes are actually very, very bad, setting very inappropriate consumption norms that, again, then sort of bias your behavior when you do come to eat something uh, or make something yourself. We have a question here. Thank you for your talk. Sorry, is this on? Um, I just wanted to ask you, is there anything you can do uh, to stop yourself from comfort eating? Stop yourself? From, from comfort eating and um, also sugar addiction. Uh, so, yes, yeah, sort of comfort eating is a, uh, an interesting one. I've just got a, 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 um, a review of that uh, at the moment, looking at... Um, what is it about comfort foods that make them comforting? Uh, and is it the same across people? Is it something that, uh, how much is it sort of mood related? Um, maybe in a way sort of the comfort food, maybe it's the sort of chicken soup or something your mother used to make. Um, it's kind of quite different in kind, sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum from, from modernist cuisine is, is rarely described as, as, as comfort food. Uh, and in that, it's kind of hard to find any particular sensory triggers if you look across comfort foods in different countries, then uh, all my, it's not that, that soft and gooey things are. Gen- sometimes it's, it's, it's crunchy crisps that can do it. Sometimes it's, it's the ice cream. Sometimes there's a bit of gender differences in what, what males and females will reach for. I think on average, women tending to go more towards a stereotype of ice creams and chocolates, and the men going more for substantial meat-based meals as, as their kind of comfort. So it is something that people are looking at. Um, um, and when it becomes kind of, in a way, sort of particularly interesting, maybe not to, for, your, for yourself, but generally in, um, in terms of space food, that now thinking about sort of missions to Mars, there uh, you've got people maybe several years or a lifetime away from planet Earth, uh, and while in the past people used to think that uh, space food should just be about nutrition, it's about getting the calories in and that's it, in minimum possible space and weight, uh, they sort of realise that in fact now uh, the sort of psychological benefits of eating together are key, for long-term space flight, um, and that notion of comfort food is going to become even more important for those who are so, so far away from the families who's two light years away from communicating with their families at mealtimes. So they are sort of the, the uh, NASA are, are actively working and trying to understand better on that and then um, deliver the best comfort foods in those extreme environments. The sugar addiction part, uh, I'm not sh- uh, sure. I mean, some of these approaches, I think, if you put them together... What would happen if I served my food off a round white plate while listening to the tinkling high-pitched sweet music and made it all look round with a heavy... Can you layer these things up? Um, we're not sure yet. Probably some of them you can. Maybe there's some sort of ceiling you get to where I can, I can almost make things taste 10% sweeter to you than it might otherwise, but beyond that I can't take something that has... I can't take water and turn it into wine by any of this stuff. But I think any, any and, uh, and all of these sort of small nudges are now being tested in sort of longer-term studies to try and help. Uh, people consume less sugar. 
Yes, we, we do have a question here. Yes. I know that in uh, supermarkets, you, when you walk into a supermarket, you can, um, they normally put the bread aisle just behind so you can uh, smell the wafts of the baking, fresh breaking bread. But the reason for me asking you this is um, I come from South Africa and you get steakhouses and they actually put some type, they must grill something in the actual grilling process. And you can go 100 meters away from the restaurant and you can actually smell this. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. But, um, and they, they have that in food courts internally as well, in, inside malls. But the thing is that I've never actually seen that or smelt it in Britain. And I've been here for about 15 years. So do you actually, I mean, uh, are companies actually thinking of doing that? Uh, they are actually doing it. I think so the bread one is an interesting one from, from my work with the flavour and fragrance houses years ago. It's like the one smell that was very, very hard to imitate synthetically. If you smelt the bread smell, it most likely probably was cooking bread somewhere. Maybe that's changed a bit now, but... Uh, there's a great article from uh, Nasser in the Wall Street Journal from 2014 that's uh, covered in the smell chapter in the book, talking about this kind of olfactory marketing. Uh, and she b- brings up the examples of uh, Cinnabon, uh, Chain, uh, Panera, Bread, who deliberately uh, will, cinema, Cinnabon will, will bake kind of uh, sheets of baking paper with cinnamon uh, on the top, just to create the smell and aroma outside the store, even when there's nothing cooking, actually. They'll also cite their stores in uh, shopping malls at the bottom of staircases so the smell will come out and waft its way up to the next floor and they will deliberately choose the minimum extraction uh, fan possible again to maximise the odour delivery. So they are very aware of it, some of those chains. And maybe I think we should sort of worry about it because again, what does it do to our behaviours? Does it nudge us perhaps in a bad direction? And I'm thinking of things like uh, the Hilton chain, uh, Doubletree chain here in the UK and elsewhere. When you go there, you'll get into the lobby, it's suddenly... It's olfactory marketing. You smell a freshly baked cookie, and they give you one when you check in. So it's like a, pr- a present, surprising present at check-in, very sticky kind of thing. But that smell in the lobby does it get me to eat something that I wouldn't otherwise have done. And the more I am exposed to these food odors, uh, is that really a problem? We know I can't go into a into a into a uh, train station now without smelling the coffee and who knows what else. And all of those olfactory cues might turn out to be almost as powerful as the visual ones in terms of of biasing our choice and, and getting us to salivate. Uh, and choose more. Yes, um, if you can hit with. Um, I noticed that the Japanese um, food culture has quite a focus on counters. So you sit in front of the chef while your food's being prepared personally for you. Yep. Now, obviously, there are some chef's tables now appearing in Michelin starred restaurants. Do you think that's a trend that's going to continue? I think it most definitely is. Um, so I guess it's been around in the UK maybe sort of 10 years or so. Is it uh, Gordon Ramsay may have the first chef's table in London, perhaps? Um, but it's, it's becoming more common. Uh, uh, Kitchen Theory, um, I mentioned the, the dish up here. Theirs is now a chef's table up in um, uh, High Barnet. Uh, I'm seeing it as a, as a growing trend, both because it plays to uh, the theatrical aspects of dining, which are, are on the ascendant, and because it also targets the solo diner, and there are some sort of uh, chains, sort of arty uh, food chains, best described, like Iron Mal, that only have tables for one to, to, to cater this growing market. So as the number of solo diners goes up, anything you can do to make them more comfortable uh, is going to help, and that, and that chef's table fits in there. And also I think you can see it uh, as in, in line with that kind of freshly prepared before my eyes. So the whole food truck revolution uh, in the UK is kind of sort of similar. 
different price point, but uh, similar in terms of you're seeing the food prepared in front of you, uh, and so you know it's fresh, and that maybe adds value um, as well. So I think it's going to, it is sort of coming uh, uh, more and more. Yes. Um, like many people, I suffer from tinnitus, which means I can't actually hear high-pitched noises. Um, does that mean that people like me are less predisposed or more predisposed to a, sort of avoid sugary sweet foods, or is it only at the James Blunt level of um, <laughs> sweetness that that kicks in? Um, that I do not know. Um, I suppose there, um, from my reading, sort of different types of tinnitus, or it may express itself in different ways. Some will hear high pitch, others will hear. Uh, different kinds of noises. Um, and it's sort of surprising to see, um, there's a nice paper just came out in Current Biology looking at the, the, sort of the, um, some of the neural substrates in, in those who are exposed to tinnitus. Um, it's one of those things that it, when you look, is surprisingly little studied. Uh, how do uh, deaf individuals experience food differently? How do the blind experience food differently? Well, they're dying in the dark restaurants, yes, but in terms of research about how that changes the, the dominance of different senses, uh, uh, virtually nothing. And, and what, you, what you normally see is kind of if one sense is taken out, then uh, maybe that bit of the brain is given over to the other senses. So maybe the blind, in some cases, can uh, smell more because they use their visual brain as well as their smell brain to smell. So they've got more neural real estate to help. Um, but the other thing you might also see is kind of this sort of plasticity the brain sort of changing and updating for a new situation. Um, so the answer is I don't know. Um, and I suspect there might not actually be any reason. <laughs> 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 yes. Yeah. Yes, a question from the lady at the back. I'm a cancer specialist nurse for head and neck um, patients who through either radiotherapy or mm -hmm. surgery have anatomically lost the ability to taste or smell. Are there things I can recommend to patients or if they know their tricks, they're effectively tricking themselves, would it still work? So um, from the sort of uh, historical record, um, those who lose the sense of taste the taste buds no longer work on the, on the tongue for whatever reason, actually have very little consequence of that. So you have a cases from uh, Brillat Savran talking about uh, these Algerian soldiers uh, in the 1840s having their touch, tongues chopped out as punishment, and yet they didn't lose any of the taste of food. And you have uh, Fafferman, who was a sensory psychophysicist working in the 60s, who got herpes, and that gradually destroyed all of his taste buds, and he's kind of systematically studied its impact, and for him, again, virtually no impact on his taste experience. So it's really this loss of the sense of smell that gives rise to the biggest uh, detriment and that you might want to make up for. Um, there, if, uh, so then going to the other senses, adding, having foods with more uh, crunch or, or texture or, or sound interest or colour variety uh, or, or spice can all be used as well as those uh, whose taste buds are, are declining in, in older age. Does it, do these effects uh, not work if you know you're being tricked? Um, I suspect sometimes yes and sometimes no. So uh, we do work uh, with food companies looking at the colour. If we change the colour of a, a drink and we say, look, 
There are 180 glasses in front of you, random array of rainbow colours. Those colours tell you nothing about what's inside the glass, so ignore them. Keep your eyes open so you don't spill it, but look at the glass and ignore it and try and just tell me about the taste. People cannot ignore the colour. Um, and some of the examples I use are of sort of basic multisensory effects, like the McGurk effect, where you, you stare at a face and you, he's saying one thing, but you hear something different. I've been staring at this illusion, uh, audiovisual illusion, for 20 years, and I still get exactly the same illusion as anybody else does seeing it for the first time. So sometimes the brain kind of integrates things so early and only gives us access to the results of the integration later on. And so it becomes impossible for us to pull apart what the raw inputs were. So I'm optimistic that in some cases at least uh, these effects can still work, um, will do still work, even after uh, lots of uh, evidence to the contrary. Um, And we don't work with sort of things like Smarties, uh, trying to see people's long-term exposure and sort of smarties are interesting as you know, candy-covered chocolates with different colours, and people have strong beliefs about, do all smarties taste the same, or do the orange ones taste different than the green ones? And many people will say the orange ones taste of orange, and if you're in the UK, you're probably right. Nowhere else in the world do they taste orange, and other colours taste of something. But you've been eating these things for 30, 40, 50 years. By the time we test you, surely you would have learnt after 50 years of that this colour isn't what they taste like. But no, for whatever reason, our brain keeps tricking us, even over long-term exposure in that case. The kind of contrast case would be um, something like these low-fat meals, where you see that uh, you know, there's low-fat uh, meals that, uh, when you start taking them, your weight will go down temporarily, and then your brain will click. Ah, I'm not getting quite as many calories in this meal as I, as I expected. And then your consumption will start gradually creeping up again. So some things the brain will learn about, other things that it, it won't. It may be a matter of trial and error in some cases to see which ones are permanent and that maybe uh, you know, which ones will end up like the placebo effect in, in medicine, that you know, even though if you know it's a sugar pill, uh, surely it can't still help to relieve some symptoms, and yet it can if tested in the right way. And I think food uh, and some of these sort of sensory uh, effects will fit into that same space. Do we have time for a last question? Yes? Just one. one. So just last question on the side here. Um, Thank you. Fascinating talk. Um, Have you looked into the origins of eating behavior? I'm specifically thinking about a horrible tradition in this country to eat your lunch in front of your laptop or like scrolling down your mobile phone. Um, do you have any recommendations as to how this can be tackled? Because obviously people will not stop doing this. And why do you think is the reason for that? Thank you. Um, so there, yeah, there's kind of the, uh, if, if, if the uh, TV is, uh, effectively leads to a 15 to 25% increase in food consumption, how much worse the consumption is kind of the mobile handheld technology that so many people are so addicted to? On the one hand, it's much more addictive, so it must be worse for consumption, but on the, on the other hand, it's, it's taking one of your hands up, so there's less, it's a bit harder to interact with the food, so maybe it counterbalances uh, each other out. Um, how that came about, uh, I don't know. I sort of wonder in a way whether some of this, um, at least of the sort of taking, using one's technology to take images of food is almost like setting down an external memory. If you maybe sort of know that maybe I'll forget what I ate and I want to keep a record of it somehow, then by kind of taking that picture, you are using the web or whatever, or, or social media as a kind of an external memory source to, to relive um, the moment. 
And in terms of sort of changing behavior, uh, nice examples that are, are in the book. Um, there's one uh, bar in Brazil where the bar owner got too fed up of people um, on their mobile devices not communicating that he designed a whole set of beer glasses that will fall over unless you put your mobile device to balance it out. And kind of a, 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 a nice solution there. Um, and, and there may be a lot of things that we're trying to do, say, with the, with the sonic seasoning with the... With the um, uh, mobile, mobile device is try to reposition the technology from the distraction uh, f- from the food and the distraction from your person you're dining with and somehow integrate it into a, uh, uh, a healthy or beneficial way uh, for the experience and maybe the more cases we can find where that technology can be used to season enhance the experience of the food the less likely people might be uh, to use it for other purposes at mealtimes probably a big challenge Thank you very much, Charles. Thank you very much for your for your talk. Uh, we.